You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, today, social media is like all the rage, isn't it? Everybody wants social media to be the next big thing for themselves. And I've always wanted to do that. In fact, here we go. One more. Everybody smile. There we go. I'll get that one later. I've always wanted to do that right before a sermon. And some of you are thinking, what's he doing? I'm planning on getting more followers. That's the goal, right? You want to get more followers. In fact, that's the crazy thing is that people have decided that social media is something they can use to really pump up their profile, to get everybody all excited about who they are, and really promote themselves. And some of you might have been tempted to do that. I know a lot of you are going, I couldn't care less about any of that stuff. But don't think that you're not guilty of the same kind of thing offline as people are online. But you know, social media has taken over. There's a Netflix documentary called Social Animals. And it follows the lives of these three kids. And how social media for some of them has been a positive, but it's also been a very negative force in their lives. In fact, I'm writing an article for a website called Church Tech Today that's talking about how the church is using YouTube and YouTube vlogs. You know what a vlog is? It's like a diary in video form on the internet. And churches all over the country are doing this as a way of promoting their churches. I want you to know something though. Media is neutral. It's not wrong and it's not right all by itself. For example, When the radio first came, you could hear a lot of preaching on the radio. Still can. And the church tried to harness the radio as a way to get the gospel out. And then guess what came next? Television. And you would hear preachers get up and talk about the evils of television. And we kind of ceded television to the world for the most part. But then the church realized it's not the media The medium, television itself, that's wrong. It's what we see on it that can be a bad influence on our lives. And so churches are now trying to take the form of television, the movie theater. You know, there's all kinds of pretty horrible stuff that comes out in movie theaters. But here over the last 20 years, the church has really tried much harder. Now they have for a long time. Billy Graham was one of the early pioneers in using movies to reach people for the gospel. And so as the internet came along, the church is trying to harness it and social media as well. Let me show you some some stats uh, or tell you some stats. Uh, There's a a website called Oberlo and that uh, has said that 3.2 billion active social media users post every single day. 3.2 billion. Think about that. That's half of the world's population. 68% of U.S. adults use Facebook. You break it down by generation, millennials, 90.4%. Generation X, that's my generation, uh, 77.5. Baby boomers are even in the act. How many of you are baby boomers? 48.2 baby boomers use Facebook on a regular basis. So why do we care about any of that here on a Sunday morning? when we're here to talk about Jesus. Well, let me ask you a few questions. For those of you who are social media users, you like Facebook, you like Instagram, maybe you wanna be the next YouTube star. 
What do you want to see more of? More of your own followers on social media or more followers of Jesus? Which one is really more exciting to you? Do you read the Bible as faithfully as you check your Facebook feed, your Twitter feed, your Instagram photos, YouTube? When something of interesting, something interesting happens to you, are you more likely to post about it on Facebook and tell the world, or are you more likely to talk to God and thank Him for what's going on in your life? I know, as I've said just a moment ago, a lot of you say, I don't care about any of that. I don't use Facebook or Instagram. I, don't, I mean, I use the, the, the TV. I don't know about this YouTube thing. And, you know, you don't care about any of that stuff. But let me ask you a question. It's kind of the same thing, only offline. What do you want more of? Do you want to promote your name in the community more than you want to promote the name of Jesus Christ? For example... We used to call it keeping up with the Joneses. You know, you want to uh, uh, have everything that your neighbors have. And so people try to keep up with them. I don't know what you guys have, uh, Johnny and Sherry, that's so wonderful. Everybody's trying to keep up with the two of you. Their last name is Jones. Uh, I'm kidding. But, you know, you, you go to work and you want your name promoted at work. You uh, think about your neighbors and you want them to see your house as the prettiest one on the block with the best yard and the nicest flowers or the biggest garden. Even in church, we get to church and we want people to notice the work that we have done for our personal glory instead of lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. It could be in some community organization or the local sports league. Oh, my kid's better than your kid. And it just goes on and on from there. We work really hard to preserve our reputation. You know, we want to have our name as respected. And sure, that can be a positive thing for the kingdom of God. As people respect you, they might respect Christ more if you're a solid witness. But for some of us, it's more about my name than the name Jesus. Here's another way to ask the same question. What are you more interested in? The influence of people and praise for your efforts or praise for Jesus' gracious acts in your life. This morning, we're going to begin a new sermon series called Pots of Gold. Think about it. Where do you think of the pot of gold? It's at the end of the rainbow, right? How many of you have found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Anybody go searching for it? It's kind of a funny idea when you think about it because, you know, you go and you see a rainbow and you think to yourself, you hear that old legend, you know, there must be a pot of gold somewhere. I sure wish that I could get a hold of that pot of gold. But what are pots of gold? They're fictitious things that promise a benefit to your life, but they just don't deliver on the hope. And we're going to look at a few of these. The first one is today we're going to talk about fame. Fame is one of those pots of gold. Fame, not in the sense of everybody in the country knows your name, but fame that in your circle of influences, people think about you first. The second one that we'll look at next week is fortune. Thinking about money and that sort of stuff. The third one is approval. It's sort of like fame, but it, it's not the same. You are a people pleaser instead of a God pleaser. And the fourth one is comfort. I think one of the biggest problems in American Christianity today is we're more interested in comfort than comforting others. 
And so today we're going to think about this, the idea of fame. And in order to do that, let's turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, as we think about, this is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture because it includes two verses that lots of people know. The lesser known is John 3, 3, you must be born again. And Jesus was talking with a man named Nicodemus. He came and spoke to him and Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus was confused. He said, you want me to crawl back into my mother's womb? And of course, all the mothers say, no, mercy me. And Jesus went on to explain that, no, it's a spiritual rebirth. It's, it's changing your life because the Holy Spirit in you takes over and takes control because you give it to him. You surrender yourself to him and he now has control over your life. And as a result of that, you know the truth of God's love. And then the most popular verse, possibly in all the Bible, John 3, 16, which tells us that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And when we think about those two verses, in light of that conversation he had with Nicodemus, John, the writer of the gospel, talked about John, another John, John the Baptist, and shared about a story about him. And so look with me at verse 22. Let's begin by reading John chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Jordan countryside, where he spent time with them and baptized. By the way, in chapter 4, it explains that a little further and says it wasn't Jesus who did the baptizing, it was his disciples. But in verse 23, John also was baptizing. In other words, John the Baptist in Enon near Salim. That section is kind of halfway between the, the Galilee, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south. It was considered kind of a, a wilderness area on the very northern edge of Judea. And so it says that because there, were plenty of, because there was plenty of water there, in other words, that's why they baptized there, people were coming and being baptized. Now verse 24, since John had not yet been thrown into prison. By the way, that's a clue to us as to the character of John. He's such a vocal, outspoken speaker about truth that the leaders of his day didn't like it very much and had him thrown into prison and eventually beheaded. In Matthew 14, we hear about that. Herod had an affair and John spoke out about it. And so Herod had him arrested and then he told his uh, girlfriend, what do you want? She said, I want John's head on a platter right here, right now. And so he brought it to her. He says in verse 25, then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. This is referring to in the Old Testament, places like, <coughs> excuse me, Leviticus 8, 6, where it talked about how Moses had Aaron and his fellow Levite, Levitical priests, how they would have a, a ceremonial bath before they would bring the sacrifice before the Lord. It was a way of showing how God had cleansed them and made them worthy to stand before God. Also in Leviticus 13 and 14, it talked about how a baptism was commanded after you had been determined to be unclean because of skin diseases. And so that same idea of baptism for cleansing, John the Baptist brought it forward and used it as a way of saying, you need to repent of your sins. And Jesus and his disciples adopted the same practice in fact, Jesus himself was baptized. So then in verse 26, we pick it up. It says, so they came to John and told him, Rabbi, this is John's disciples. They came to him and told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about, way back in John chapter one, he told them Jesus was the one that he had been coming to prepare the way for. The one you testified about, 
who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John responded, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. So in verse 29, he made, he who has made the bride is the groom. Or I'm sorry, he who has the bride is the groom. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens to him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. Let me pause there. John is using an analogy. He's saying, I'm sort of like the best man at the wedding. My whole purpose is to support the groom. My whole purpose is there to be by his side, to, to honor him as the person that, that is the most important of all the, the men at the wedding. And if you've ever been a groomsman, you know what that's like. You know, you support him, you're there for him, you're by his side. But they had an interesting practice in the first century, one that I don't think too many of us would be excited about. On the day of the wedding, the best man would stand there with the, the groom, and then after the wedding was over, the, the groom would go into the bedchamber. And it was the job of the best man to escort the bride into the bedchamber. And he and another witness would stand outside and listen. You know what they were listening for, don't you? They were listening to make certain that the marriage was consummated. And when it was finally consummated, they would inform everyone at the wedding, and that's when the great celebration would begin. Now that's a strange practice, isn't it? That is what John is referring to. He's saying that, that I am the, the bridegroom, or I'm the, the, groom, the groomsman rather. I'm the one who's to stand here and proclaim to you that the groom has come and he's made his relationship with his bride, the church, possible. And as a result, all of us should celebrate. We should all uh, have a, a great time of praise and honor of the couple. And so John is saying, I'm secondary. I'm less. I'm not as important. That should be the attitude that all of us have towards Jesus Christ. And we get to the final verse of this passage. The one I want us to really see today is verse 30. Very simple verse. Probably ought to be memorized right along with John 3, 3 and John 3, 16. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. He's the most important. He's the one that we should lift up and praise. But I must decrease. I humble myself at the feet of Christ. I stand behind the cross, promoting it above everything. I share the message of the empty tomb, not letting people focus on me, but on him. But there's a problem. The problem is that many of us have a heart that goes after fame. Maybe not worldwide fame. Maybe you don't want to be known as well known as the President of the United States or whatever uh, the greatest uh, pop singer is today or, or the most important actor or actress in Hollywood. Some great athlete, you know, who just got signed to a huge lucrative contract in the NBA or the NFL. Maybe that's not your goal. Maybe you don't think in those terms. But you still want fame in your small circles of influence. You want the people around you to honor you. And many of us are tempted. Many of us have that as a secret goal in our lives when we know we never should. 
So how do we, knowing that we have this struggle, make more of Jesus? Because that's why we're here. We're here to make more of Jesus. As a friend of mine says it, his whole mission is to make everyone know that Jesus is better. Better than what? Everything. Better than me. Better than you. Better than soggy milk on cereal. (laughs) Better than the greatest dinner you've ever had. Better than your family. Better than your job, getting a new car, a wonderful vacation. He's better than it all. He's most important. (coughs) Excuse me. And the way we do that is as it says in John 3.30, you make more of Jesus by humbling yourself. That's the first part. It's the second half of the verse, but it's the beginning of our process of making more of Jesus. You make more of Jesus by humbling yourself. How do we do that? Helen Rosevere is a medical missionary in Africa, or was, and uh, she was the only doctor in a very large hospital. And uh, she tells tells about having these constant interruptions, and, and there were shortages of supplies in order to treat the people that she served. And she got increasingly frustrated and impatient and irritable. And during this stretch of her life, she really had a hard time focusing on the Lord. She was so focused on uh, how she was struggling and how hard it was for her to do her work. And she met with one of the African pastors uh, that was ministering in the area. And he said to her, Helen, please come with me. So he drove Helen to his humble house. He told her that there she was going to have a private retreat. He said, I want you to spend two days in silence and solitude, no interruptions. And here's what I hope you'll do in these two days. I want you to spend these two days in prayer until your attitude can change. Well, she tried. And so all night and the next day she prayed and she prayed and she struggled. She kept thinking about the ministry, the hospital. She kept thinking about all the problems, the distractions. Uh, made it very difficult for her. And she prayed and prayed. And her prayers, she said, it felt like they were bouncing off the ceilings of his home. And then late on Sunday night, she sat there beside the pastor around a little campfire just outside his little humble home. Humbly, almost desperate, she confessed that she was stuck. And so the pastor, with his bare toe, taking it out of his sandal, stood next to her. And with his toe, he drew a long line in the sand. And he said this, that is the problem, Helen. There is too much I in your service. I have noticed that often, that quite often you take a coffee cup, a coffee break, and you hold the coffee in your hands waiting for it to cool. And so then he drew another line. He drew the first one straight. And then he drew another line. He said, Helen, from now on, as the coffee cools, ask God, Lord, cross out the eye and make me more like you. In the dust of that African ground, she said, where a cross had formed, Helen Rosevere learned the master principle of Jesus. Freedom comes through humble service. And service comes by releasing our ego. I 
must decrease. Humble yourself. That's how you make more of Jesus. Let me give you an example of a man who did just that. His name is Robert Morin. He was a librarian for the University of New Hampshire. And he lived in a simple home, a simple life. He ate TV dinners in his house and he drove a 20-year-old car to and from work, everyone said. He was just all about the books. He loved books. He read constantly. He loved to talk to students and recommend books to them for their research projects and spent all of his life pouring into their education. And then unfortunately, the unthinkable happened and he died. After he died in March of 2015, (coughs) something came to the university. It was a donation. It came from his lawyer. Robert Morin had left his entire estate to the university. And most, if they had heard that, would have thought, oh, that's nice, probably a few thousand dollars, maybe some tens of thousands. It ended up being $4 million. This humble man spent next to nothing his whole life and saved it. And then in the end, he said, I want to give it away to the place that meant so much to me. And as a result of that, He humbled himself in order to serve other people. Now he wasn't serving the Lord, but he made less of himself to help others. And in that same attitude, we have something far greater to serve than a university or a library. We have the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world. And if we will see ourselves as secondary to him, we must decrease, we must humble ourselves in order to make more of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, it says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the, on the streets to be applauded by people. What he's talking about there is the trumpets. Actually, there we had trumpet-shaped collections. Uh, the, the place where you put your money was shaped like a trumpet made of metal. And the the wealthy would come along and they would throw their money in. And the goal was to make make as much sound as possible. And so you wouldn't come bringing, you know, a $100 bill. You'd bring 100 silver dollars. We've got to make it sound bigger so that everyone will say, wow, look at that fella. He sure gave an awful lot. He said, but in verse 3, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I must decrease, he said. How do we do that? By making ourselves less. The goal is not personal fame. It's not making myself more important. It's not giving so that people will see me giving. It's giving so that they will see the person to whom I'm giving. And if it's that person that you're giving... Ultimately, it's Jesus Christ that you want people to see. Not with fanfare, but with glory to God. I must decrease. But the first half of the verse says, he must increase. You see, how do we make more of Jesus? Number one, we do it by humbling ourselves. But number two, we do it by glorifying Jesus, by making more of him, by glorifying him. Instead of glorifying ourselves and our service and the things that we do, we give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. He's, after all, the perfect example of humble service. Think about what Jesus humbly did for you. 
He's king of kings and lord of lords. But he left his kingly throne and his kingly crown and came to this earth and took a crown of thorns and the throne of the cross. He's the savior of the world. And yet his own people rejected him. They spit on him. They laughed at him. They beat him. One of his best friends, Peter, denied him three times. The rest of his trusted students, his disciples, most of them ran away when he was arrested, when uh, you'd think that he needed them most. But he didn't let that stop him. He's the only person to kick up the dust on planet Earth without ever wavering from the path of righteousness. Even one time, despite incredible temptations to do so. Yet, he accepted the sins of the world. Yes, hatred and lying, rumor mongering about other people, having an unforgiving spirit, adultery, lust, dishonoring your parents. He accepted all of that sin, even though he knew no sin, he never committed any sin. He never wavered from that path. He perfectly followed it, but he became sin for us and he did it willingly and passionately. And when they punished him for our sins, he took it all silently. That is, I think, one of the greatest acts of humility as well as the greatest acts of love and sacrifice any human being has ever committed. And when it was all said and done, in order to give us victory, this great Savior, the creator of the world, took that power and he rose from the dead and he's alive today. And he takes that same power and infuses it into your life and entrusts you with it so that you can serve him and honor him. Not for your glory, not for our personal benefit and our fame, but to lift up the very name of Jesus Christ. That name that means everything. That name that means itself, salvation. That's why we're here. He must increase and I must decrease. We humble ourselves in order to honor Jesus. Serving him without any desire for attention. Giving of ourselves just like he did. Self-sacrificially and humbly. Bringing him honor in all of our actions and in our thoughts, our feelings, even our very words that we speak. Now here's the motivation for why we do it. Why do we humble ourselves? And that is because of this. If I humble myself and glorify God and in so make more of Christ, Christ promises to do something for me. You see, God blesses people who humble themselves to make more of Jesus Christ. Think about old Tim Tebow. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were fans of him as Christians. And I'm sure there were some Denver fans who liked the fact that they brought him back to the playoffs for the first time in a while. But, you know, honestly, he wasn't a great quarterback in the NFL. He was a good high schooler, a good college quarterback. But in the NFL, he didn't quite have the, the mechanics and the skill that everyone else had. So he didn't excel. And yet, during his time in the NFL, he was one of the most popular players but yet at the same time, he was also one of the most humble. 
He wasn't all about the show of himself. He wasn't there to promote himself and make himself more important. Every chance he get, every time he was interviewed, every opportunity he did anything positive on the field, he took the chance to make more of Jesus, to honor and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. He was an awful lot like a character in the Old Testament, David. David has this story in 1 Chronicles 14 where it talks about how he had come to the throne after Saul. And uh, his, he was one of these people that, that he had been fleeing from Saul and he went to, to, Goliath, to Goliath's home country of Gath. And people thought, you know, that's kind of strange that he would go there. But he went there and Gath is in a place called Philistia. The Philistines were from there. And he defeated them as a boy, but then he went to them and retreated to them. And I'm sure the Philistines loved that, trying to use him against his home country of, of Israel. But after he took the throne, he returned to Israel. And the whole nation eventually made him king over the country. And the Philistines probably didn't like that. You know, they thought, I thought he was our guy. We thought we were going to make him a puppet king. And he ended up not doing so. He ended up being his own man. He ended up being God's man, in fact. And so they attacked. And in 1 Chronicles 14, verse 8, it says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they all went in search of David. When David heard of this, he went out to face them. Now the Philistines had heard, had come and raided in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of God. Did you hear that? He inquired of God. He prayed. Should I attack the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And the Lord replied, attack, and I will hand them over to you. You know, God made good on that promise that day. And he had victory. And the Philistines didn't like that. They pulled back, they regrouped, and then they attacked again. And look at verse 14, what it says in 1 Chronicles 14. So David again inquired of the Lord, and God answered him. Do not pursue them directly. Circle around them and attack them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the troops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle for God will have gone out ahead of you to strike down the army of the Philistines. So David did as God commanded and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. The details I want us to pull out there is both times he inquired of the Lord. He could have, as an arrogant king, thought, you know, I know better. I'm a great warrior. I've brought lots of victories. After all, they used to chant in the streets, Saul has killed the thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. He said, you know, I used those Philistines to protect myself from Saul, and now I'm going to go out and defeat them as well. I'm better. Why should I have to ask anybody for any help? I know what I'm doing. Or maybe he didn't necessarily have to be, have that vibrato about it. Maybe he could have just kind of forgot. Oh yeah, they're attacking. Well, let's go out and attack without even thinking about, should I talk to God first? Should I pray to him first? But he was the kind of man who was after God's heart. He loved God. He wanted to honor God. That's how we were introduced to David. A man who said, I trust God to defeat that giant. Why don't you? And as a result, David did what God commanded him and nothing else. First, he said, go out and attack and I'll get them for you. 
The second time, God said, don't attack directly. What you need to do is you need to go around the side and set up a trap in the woods. And when they get into the woods, not out in the open country, you know, get them. That's when you can take them. And God gave David victory because David humbled himself. David decreased. And God increased in his life. And that's how God brought David victory. And that's how God wants to bring you victory. And now look at verse 17. He, see what happened. After David humbled himself, he decreased. And he glorified and honored God by seeking him first and letting everyone know about it so that it was written in the books of the Bible and chronicled for us to see two or 3,000 years later. When all of that happened, his humility plus honoring God equaled this. Look at verse 17. It says, Then David's fame spread throughout the lands, and the Lord caused all the nations to be terrified of him. David didn't seek fame. But God said, I'll let you have it anyway. God blesses those who humble themselves in order to glorify and honor him. And the very thing that we may not seek or want, he might give to you. Now, I know what the temptation for some of us might be at this point, because I've been there. Oh, I'm going to humble myself and seek the Lord. And then when the Lord blesses me, it's going to be tempting to say, hey, let me see if I can get some more blessings. What else can I do to get God's blessing? You see, and, and the focus becomes on the blessing itself instead of on the God who grants the blessing. If you're living your life just for God's blessing, that's not good enough. You need to live your life for the God who does the blessing. It's the relationship, not the rewards. The rewards are a byproduct. It's a, a side thing. You know, if you happen to make a friend of someone who's wealthy and then they end up giving you stuff, the stuff isn't what's valuable in that uh, interchange. It's the relationship. And God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he wants to bless you with them. But he wants us to want him, not the stuff. Would you want someone to want to be in a relationship with you just because of what you have and what you can give them? I know it sounds counterintuitive. We're taught all our lives to think about, you know, how God will bless you with eternal life and how he'll bless you with rewards in heaven. But the ultimate thing is we want him, the relationship with him who loved us enough to die for our sins, who gave himself up for you and me. Don't you want to be in a relationship with someone who loves you that much? Well, that's how you do it. He must increase, but I must decrease. Brian Wilkerson is a pastor of a Massachusetts church named Grace Chapel. Some of you may have heard of him, written some, read some of his books or heard him speak at some point. And uh, he told a story about a couple of his friends, a couple named Charlie and Agnes. Charlie was the director of the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. It's a ministry to alcoholics on the skid row of Chicago. And uh, it's been there for a very long time. And he was the director of this ministry for a while. And then he decided it was time for his retirement. So he did what a lot of us did. He tried the life of ease for a little while. And it just didn't work for Charlie. He had to get back in it. By that time, he had moved to New England and, or into to New York. And so he went to work for the Macaulay Water Street Mission in New York City. Again, another historic ministry to the poor in that city. Every day he would commute into the city because it's in the, the heart of 
the city and he couldn't afford to live there. And so he would commute in every day, a long track, track to get in there. But as a result of its notoriety, and this has been around forever, some, they had some wealthy benefactors. And one of these wealthy benefactors gave Charlie and Agnes tickets to Carnegie Hall to hear Handel's Messiah. And so Brian and his wife were invited because he had four tickets. Own little, little box seat, you know, where, where the wealthy people sit. <laughs> and after the performance, they got in Charlie's car and they drove home. Charlie and Agnes were sitting in the front seat and Brian and his wife were sitting in the back seat, his wife Karen. And he looked at the two of them and had one of those bench seats, an older car, and she kind of snuggled on over close to him. You know, there's a couple in their 70s acting like teenagers out on their first date. <laughs> and he said, I don't think there are two happier people in all the world than those two people. They don't have much. They drive an old car. They've never made any money hardly. He kind of had to go back to work actually after he retired financially. But yet they're so happy. And then he said this, they struck me in that moment as the two happiest people on earth. Just then I noticed a little plaque they had stuck to the dashboard in their old Chevy. It was a quote from Jim Elliott. Some of you who were here last Sunday night to see the movie The End of the Spear. Jim Elliott was one of the friends of the man who gave his life in that movie. It said this, God always gives what's best to those who leave the choice to him. Charlie and Agnes had, a long ago, had long ago given up striving, he said, fretting and demanding things from God and from life. Instead, they had surrendered to God their talents, their careers, their safety, their material goods, and even their retirement. Instead of chasing the abundant life, they waited for God to bring it to them. They lived out John 3.30 perfectly, just like King David lived it perfectly and became the standard by which all Hebrew kings were judged. Jesus the Messiah came from David's lineage. God chose to do that because of his humble, sacrificial service to the Lord. Charlie and Agnes, King Dave, Agnes, King David, John the Baptist, they decreased. And because of their lives, Jesus increased. Let me ask you this question. Will that be your testimony? Will that be the way people see you? Not seeking fame, not seeking fortune, not seeking self, but always seeking to make more of the name of Jesus. God blesses those who bless him. Thank you so much for listening to our sermons from High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, the pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. And if God has really spoken to you through this message, please get in touch with me. You can go over to highpeakchurch.com and look for a way to contact us. Or if you want, you can come directly to me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. 
We're also on Facebook, searching for High Peak Church. We'd love to see you. We have our services every Sunday morning at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m. in our fellowship hall, and then also midweek service on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. Please come and join us. We've got classes for all ages. God bless you, and thanks for listening.